Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Spent a little bit of time this week preparing for this morning. I thought, what is it that God might have had on my heart that I wanted to share with you? And these two words kept coming back time and time again, lost and found. And it somewhat summarizes my spiritual journey, as I'm sure it summarizes some of yours, is there was a time we were lost and then we were found. But for most of us, it doesn't just stop there. We might get lost again, and then we get found again. And we have a tendency to wander back and forth to Christ, away from Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15. We have a terrific chapter of scripture here where Jesus shares three distinct parables, okay? And the first one is of the lost sheep. And I'm quickly reminded every time I read this chapter that that the authors of scripture really liked to compare followers of God to sheep. And I'm just, you know, I'm reminded every time they do that that sheep aren't always cast in a great light. Do you guys understand what I mean? Like, sheep aren't that bright, Yet routinely authors in scripture tend to associate us with them. I mean, sheep have no sense of direction, right? They have a dependency on others. They have very low survival skills. They're highly emotional creatures. They follow others blindly, right? They're really not built for defense. They can't take care of themselves and they can't get up on their own. Somewhat summarizes my faith journey as well. And so we're not going to do the parable of the lost sheep. We're not going to do the parable of the lost coin, but I thought as a great way to highlight exactly where we're going to go today, I would share a a pair of videos. So indulge me a little bit. It's been a short week. I found some funny videos, and I needed to share them with you. So let's, let's watch the first one. Poor sheep needs to get out of the ditch. Oh, he got out. Thank goodness. Okay, there he goes. He's off on his own. No, wrong way. No. Oh, back in the ditch, back in the ditch. I'm fairly certain that's what the apostles are thinking when they use this terminology. What about the next video? I think we got another one. All right, okay, another sheep stuck, stuck in a, a, a nice little trench there. Oh, look at that, his shepherd gets him out. Oh, so nice. Uh, oh, no. Oh, sheep. I tell you. So we're not going to do the parable of the lost sheep. I think that summarizes an entire sermon right there. But today we're going to talk about the lost son. So thank you for indulging me. This morning, we're going to talk about the parable of the lost son. But instead of reflecting primarily on the return of the prodigal son, I want to spend maybe equal time, if not a little bit of extra time, focusing on the eldest son. It's strange, after all, when you consider for a second that there's an entirely second act to the drama that Jesus is telling the crowd. This drama, this parable, right, it's about two sons, and the vast majority of of Christians, the vast majority of teaching on this parable glosses right over that whole second act. Why do we do this? Why do we not pay attention to the eldest son and his story? 
Well, because we love the first part. We love the story of the prodigal son, right? It's a story about this younger child who, who's lost, who's experienced suffering, and then he experiences restoration, forgiveness, relationship. It's beautiful. It's a story about, while we may experience the consequences of sin, we're never too far from the Father's love. It's a great story. It's a wonderful parable about the lengths that the Father will go to to rescue one of those sheep. But what about the second son? His story isn't nearly as entertaining. It's not nearly as dramatic. And so we tend to read right over it. And I'm going to assume for a second that you've all read the story of the prodigal son or know a little bit about it, right? We've all heard that story in Luke 15. The boy cashes in on his inheritance early and only to squander it all away. Eventually, he comes to his senses and returns home. And yet what we read in the second act is the shocking celebration of grace personified through the father's response. In the distance, this long-awaiting father captures a glimpse of his son. The son left in a rich man's clothes, and now he's returning in rags. He left with his chin high in the air, prideful and arrogant, like every 18-year-old as they head off to college. And now his head is hanging down in sorrow and shame, like every university student their first week when their laundry runs out and they come home. He left, reject, he left rejecting his father, basically wishing him his, his, his dad dead for the sake of receiving that early inheritance. And now, when the father sees this son a long way off, what does the father feel? Compassion. He feels compassion. If you do a word study, as most pastors love doing because we're all secretly nerds inside, if you do a word study on the root compassion, it literally means innards. Older translation of scripture will actually use the term bowels of compassion. What the father felt, he felt so deeply that even his innards, his intestines, registered it. He agonizes on the inside at what has become of his son. And he's viscerally moved, not with anger, not with anger, but shocking compassion. I think we would all understand that a father in, in, if we were maybe in that position, if we were the father or the parent in that situation, we might not respond with so much compassion. After all, it would be somewhat reasonable to respond with maybe a little bit more frustration. Maybe something along the lines of, are you sure you want to come back in this house? I think you should stay away. I think you should go back from where you came. But no. In this story that Christ shares, the father is stirred with compassion. And according to Kenneth Bailey, he is the author of The Cross and the Prodigal, a wonderful book on this parable. He explains on how returning home, the prodigal son likely faced the prospect of something called the Kazaza ceremony. The Kazaza was a ceremony that a Jewish village would have had exactly for this specific situation. Someone had left home, rejected the community's principles, lost all of her, his or her possessions to the Gentiles, and then they returned home. 
The villagers would then take pottery and they would break it at the feet of the individual, symbolizing that they were no longer in the community with the returning person and that they were breaking off all relations with them. It was a way of shaming that individual and making him feel completely empty. Importantly, the ceremony would take place not in the village, but on the outskirts of the village before the individual could make his way back home. Now, you don't typically have a ceremony for something that happens just once. And this would indicate that this type of scenario had actually played out in Jewish society more than once. Remember, Christ is speaking to a society that has probably experienced this more than once. And so this is the welcome. This reaction is what the youngest son is actually expecting to be waiting for him upon his return. That's what the community is expecting to participate in upon his return. And most importantly, this is what the father knows is expected of him upon the son's return. I want you to keep that in mind because that, that is really important. But what about the eldest son? That not so nearly dramatic second act of the story. Why would Jesus, why would Jesus include it? If you look at the story, he could have essentially just told the story of the prodigal son returning. Well, I think the first and foremost reason is that this story isn't about highlighting the youngest son who breaks away from the father. It's about, high, it's about highlighting each son and the way they struggle in relationship with the father. Who's a firstborn? Show of hands. Who's a first, firstborn? Okay, a few of you. Who's a middle child? Hands up. My apologies to all of you. Who's a youngest son, the star of the family like me? That wasn't supposed to induce laughs. Henry Nouwen, author of The Return of the Prodigal, he suggests this, that, that firstborn children, they want to live up to the expectations of their parents and be considered obedient and dutiful. They often want to please their parents. They often fear being a disappointment to their parents, but they also experience quite early in life a certain envy toward their younger brother or sisters who seem less concerned about pleasing and much more free in doing their own thing. Let me, let me tell on myself for a minute. This describes me. Now, I wasn't the oldest, but that describes the relationship that I had with my sister. As the youngest, I was much more free to just go about and do my own thing. Forgiveness was much easier on my side than hers. And where my sister never wanted to let my parents down or, or cause them to be disappointed, I somehow routinely found ways to do that, but seemingly didn't care. The oldest are very conscientious about what others think of them. They tend to do what's right. Now, yes, there are some obvious deviations from this. Not everyone might fit the same mold. Sometimes you might have an oldest and youngest swap behavior or personality profiles, or maybe multiple kids fit one profile or the other. But personality types are known for a reason, because most often we identify, at least in a small part, with some generalities based on our shared experiences. And firstborn children have a very unique experience, just like the middle child, and so on and so forth. For the most part, the eldest child will conform to the expectations of their parents, teachers, religious leaders. As a result, 
They become very cautious, careful, deliberate about the things that they do. They become leaders, directing activities in their younger siblings. Anyone have an older sibling who is really good at directing their activities? But at the same time, they can become envious of those younger siblings, those who just don't care about pleasing their parents the same way or listening to authority figures. Have you ever felt this way? I'm willing to bet that many of us who have grown up in the church have probably felt this way about our spiritual younger brothers, sisters, or prodigals. A moment ago, I asked the question, why do most Christians gloss over the second part of this parable? Could it be that the vast majority of Christians are more like the eldest son than the prodigal? We have grown up in the church and we are more like the older brother than we may care to realize or admit to ourselves. Let's take a look at the older son. We're going to go and turn to Luke 15 and we're going to go through verses 25 to 30 and look at the second part of this story. So let's look at verse 25. It says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Okay, let me stop for a second. Jesus is doing something here. But it's subtle. It's really subtle. I wonder if you see it. If you don't, I'll give you a hint. Where was the younger son, the prodigal son, before he decided to return home? He was in a field. He was in a field. He was in the field feeding pigs in a far-off country, it says, why do you think Jesus starts the second half of this drama with the older son also in a field? I believe that Christ is highlighting that the older son is just as far from him as the prodigal. He's not in the house. He's not near the house. He's not near the father. He's off in a field just like the prodigal son. So the older son is actually having to come back from his family fields, which would be a ways away from the village that they would all live in, Right, The lands that his family owns, it wouldn't be directly next to the village. He would have to go and attend to the, to the fields. And it says he enters narrow streets, right, or he would be entering the village and, and that would contain a tightly packed group of buildings. And the text says that he heard music and dancing. He heard dancing. You don't normally hear dancing, do you? Right? Maybe if you've attended a Pentecostal church, you've heard dancing, but for us brethren traditions, that is like completely unknown to us. We don't hear dancing. We might hear singing, but we don't hear dancing. It must have been a pretty loud party, a pretty good time where the people were having such a boisterous party that he could literally hear the dancing as he entered the village. And I imagine this loud, boisterous celebration going on, right? The drum can be heard all the way as he walks into town, and it announces to the entire village, anyone who is also coming back in from the fields from a long day's work, they would hear the party, and they would know that there is an invitation to participate, right? The whole town is going to be there. The whole village, the adults would be in the banquet hall or a large room in the house, Right? And all the, the kids or any of the servants, they would be in the courtyard. They would be singing and dancing and trying to see if there was any food or special things for them to engage with. So let's pause there. What would your reaction be to this? 
What would typically happen in this circumstance as the eldest son is now entering the town and he knows that there's a party going on? And as he gets closer and closer to town, he figures out the party's actually at my house. Dad's having a party. What would his reaction be? What do you think the people listening to Jesus tell this parable, what are they expecting Jesus to hear? Uh, What are they expecting Jesus to tell them next? Ken Bailey suggests that any such son would be immediately expected to enter the banquet hall right away, no exceptions. The guests would cheer because they would have been waiting in eager anticipation for the first son to arrive. After all, he has the second highest rank in the family, second only to his dad. And this young man would greet his guests and then exchange compliments before quickly going to change out of his work robe and put on something a little more formal before rejoining the celebration. That would have been the culturally expected response. There's something going on in my house. My dad is hosting people. I need to go attend to the, to the individual's at my party. But that's not what happens. This is not the older son's reaction, and we see that in verse 26. It says, so he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Now the Greek word for servants is paidos, and if you look at a Greek to English dictionary, the first definition definition is a young boy, the second is a son, and the third is a servant. Now, given the context of this story, I think some translations use the wrong definition. The servants would have been busy in the household. The servants are the ones putting on the party. They're the ones making it possible. Son doesn't fit here either because the text would have said that it was his brother that he talked to. So the only other option is that it's a young boy from the village, someone from outside his family, someone who's trying to just enjoy the the reverie. The oldest son doesn't know what's going on, so he approaches the family house in the center of the village, and he naturally meets a group of young boys who are not old enough to recline with the elders at the banquet table, right? This is the kids' table portion of the house. Go play in the courtyard. Take some food, go play. And they're outside dancing to the beat, and they're celebrating in their own boisterous way. And he asks one of these young village boys partying in the courtyard, what's going on? What's happening? Why the party? Why the celebration? Why the big feast? Now look at verse 27. The young boy replies to him, haven't you heard? This is an understanding that that he expects this eldest son to know what's going on. After all, it's his family. It's his father throwing the feast. Typically, these types of feasts wouldn't have been done without planning in advance. Haven't you heard? Your brother has come and your father killed the fatted calf because he has come back to him safe and sound. Remember, the young son should never have been able to come home in the first place. The kazaza ceremony should have been enacted by the village, been enacted by the father, right? And the villagers should have taken a clay pot, filled it with ashes, and smashed it to the ground and begun chanting in front of the young son, informing him that he was now cut off from the village. He was cut off from the family because he squandered his wealth and his inheritance to the Gentiles. He shouldn't have been allowed back for what he had done and how he disrespected his father and his village unless he was willing to make restitution and earn his way back. 
That was the expectation for someone who experienced this kazaza ceremony. They would have to make restitution for the entire amount that they squandered. And after all, he took his inheritance early, right? Which meant his father actually had less resources with which to grow his wealth. And in turn, this had an impact on the inheritance the eldest son would eventually receive. He had a large debt to repay in order to re-enter that community. How do you think the first son felt about this? Or sorry, how do you think the eldest son felt about this? Especially as the young boy explains how big this party actually is. Right, this party is large. The whole village is there. And not only that, when we're told that the father has killed the fatted calf, what he's communicating is your father is serving a meal above all meals. And indeed, this is a meal that would have been reserved for only the most special, most important occasions. Remember, in the Middle East, the ancient Middle East, it was a luxury to have meat, to have a large amount of protein at a meal. It wasn't a common occurrence. And most people of lowly stature went long periods of time without meat. Most people didn't have sheep and goats that they could kill for a feast because they had them for milk. And here, they're feasting on the fatted calf, not the sick, lame, dying calf that it's easy to explain away and we're going to serve him up for dinner tonight. No, this is the good one. Finally, the boy explains that the father is throwing such a huge party and he kills this fatted calf. Some translations will say because he has him back safe and sound. So the father throws the party because his youngest son is back safe and sound. That's what the text says. But is he safe and sound? Again, some translations don't catch the nuance, I think, of what Jesus is is saying. If we go with a, a literal translation of the text, it says that the father has received him. He's received him into his home. But the Greek verb for received him, apolambano, can also mean that the father has gotten him back or returned him. It's an active verb. The father did this. Remember, the father went out and received the son and literally brought him back into the house. He did this so that the community, the village, couldn't go out and enact the kazaza ceremony. So it wasn't just that the son returned. It was that the son returned to the village and while a long way out, the father went and literally brought him home into safekeeping. According to the boy, the banquet is in honor of the father who sought out his lost son and found him. This is what the village is celebrating. The father found what was lost. And if you recall, it says the father had been looking for him, and when he saw him a long way out, outside the village, he ran to himself. And doing so, he actually humiliated himself. He put himself in a lower stature than what would have been expected for the father. Because the father humiliated humiliated himself by running and exposing himself to the village, the boy was ready to return as a son instead of a hired hand. He didn't have to earn back his place. He didn't have to pay restitution. The father was protecting him from that. And as a direct result of this reckless love, this grace, this forgiveness, the son was now in a position to restore his relationship to his father as a son not as a hired hand. The young boy in the courtyard says that the father has received or returned his son with hujiano, 
okay? And that means this Greek word can mean good health. But did the father receive the youngest son back in good health? Probably not. The text tells us that he becomes starving in a far-off country. So not only was he starving, but now he's traveled a long way to return. So he's probably not in good health. Well, is he, is he in good condition? Does he have any possessions left with him? Well, it tells us that he's returning in tattered clothes. We know that because it says the father calls for a robe to be placed on him and sandals to be placed on his feet. If he had those things, why would the father call for them? I don't think that the youngest son came back in good health. I think he was in rough shape, and the father went out of his way to protect him and, and bring restoration to him. Here's another reason why. The Greek, the Greek word, hugiano, is used to translate the Hebrew word shalom, or peace, in the Old Testament. And most likely, Jesus originally told this story to a Hebrew audience, right? It says he was sharing it with the Pharisees, the tax collectors, and the sinners, so these would have been his Jewish, his Jewish friends, the Jewish society around him. And so the father, it says, the, the father has received the erring son with peace, with shalom. He's bringing him in in a peace. What the father has essentially done in receiving him back is he's saying, the son is under my protection. The community, the village around him could no longer enact the kazaza ceremony without going through the father. He's welcomed him home in peace. And so this feast is a celebration of the father's very costly efforts at creating shalom or peace with his rebellious younger son. Next, the text tells us that the older son gets angry and refuses to go to the banquet. That's the next thing it tells us. And he does this not because his brother is back, but because his brother is reconciled. His brother is now a part of the family again. He thought he was done with his brother, the brother that took half his inheritance and squandered it. The eldest brother is not happy that younger brother is back, and not just that he's back, but he doesn't have to pay restitution. The father is covering for his sins. The young village boy in the courtyard suggests that this is all about the youngest son. The father has already accepted him and has done so without the prodigal paying for his sins by making restitution. That's why the older son is so upset. The older son becomes so angry, it says he doesn't go into the banquet. He doesn't go to the party. He doesn't go home. He leaves the feast. He leaves the celebration alone. It says he leaves his father. Once again, this, does, this, this doesn't happen in Jesus' day. To not go into the party, to, to, to not go and visit with the guests and, and see your father would be the ultimate disrespect for his family and for the family guests, for those in attendance. It would show an utter disregard for the father and it was an unspeakable insult in a culture that was so predicated on honor. The crowd listening to Jesus the crowd listening to this parable would be stunned at the eldest son's response to the celebration. Their mouths would, would audibly drop upon hearing this because they could not perceive a, a son doing this to their family. They're thinking, not again, not another one of the sons. Remember, the younger, sh the younger son showed this kind of disrespect earlier in the story when he asked for his share of his inheritance. 
that was disrespectful to the father. According to Ken Bailey, here's what would happen if the oldest son refused to enter the feast. Word would have passed almost instantaneously across the courtyard of the family home and it would enter the banquet hall. A a very quick game of telephone tag would, would, would start off and it would reach the father. In seconds, the entire assembled crowd knows of the public crisis forced on the father by the shameful act of the older son. The music and dancing would stop almost instantaneously, and the banquet would be brought to a complete standstill while everyone in attendance would wait for the father's response. To me, that sounds really awkward. Before we look at the father's response, there's two things that we have to understand. First, the older son's insult actually cuts much deeply than the younger son. Because the, the eldest son is doing this in public, where the youngest son did this in private. And so with the eldest son publicly humiliating his father, it's a big deal to the audience. There's, there's a point of emphasis that Jesus is sharing in this story. And second, most fathers would immediately order the slaves to overpower the disobedient son, force him into a side room, and lock him up. That would be the expected response of the father. The father would then proceed with the banquet, trying not to show his hurt and anger, right? He would try and get on with the party the best that he could, and when all the guests left, then he would bring out the eldest son, he would hold him down, and he would beat him for what he did. That's what I call old school parenting, old, old school parenting, But what was the father's response, right? What was the father's response to this now second public act of humiliation? If we look at the the second half of verse 28, it says, so his father went out and pleaded with him. The father, in a very painful, self-emptying love, leaves the seated guests and proceeds to the courtyard. We can assume that there might have been a hundred people or so that are watching and listening to this uh, interaction. The assembled guests, the servants, the entertainers, the young boys, everyone in attendance would observe in stunned silence as the father lowers himself a second time and goes out to the son. Right? Once again, the father goes out to find a lost son. Once again, the father humiliates himself to search for and find a lost son. Once again, he pays a large price, a high price to restore the eldest son. Again, the father acts out of love and grace and not anger. But this time, it is offered to a law keeper and not a law breaker. He hopes that by not giving his boy what he deserves, the relationship will be restored as well. What is the older son's response to the father's gracious act of love? We find it in verses 29 and 30. The older son, right? The good son, the dutiful son, responds in anger. It says, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed you or your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Can you see the anger in those words? 
Can you see the frustration on the eldest son? What he's telling dear old dad is, it's not fair. He got what he wanted, and I haven't gotten anything. I've been working in the fields for you night and day. What about me? It's a very selfish response. One theologian calls this uh, the eldest son's response lawlessness within the law. Even those that keep all the rules are sinners and far from God the Father. You can keep the law and still be lost. Jesus, in this parable for his assembled audience, right, he's redefining what it means to be lost. He's redefining what it means to be apart from God. Sinners who wander from God in a far-off country are just as lost as the religious people who do all the right things. But if they don't have a relationship with the Father, again, they're lost. Obedience isn't a relationship. Jesus is saying that the older son is lost. The Father represents God himself, and the meal pictures the wedding feast of the Lamb that we find in Revelation 19. The religious leaders who mutter and complain that Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them are just as lost as the sinners that they are complaining about. The religious people are like the older son. They have refused to enter the banquet. They do good to earn their inheritance or salvation, but works are no substitute for a real relationship with God the Father. Religious people all the time say to God, I have been slaving for you all these years. Religious people are not lost in spite of their good works, but because of their good behavior. It is not their sin keeping them out of heaven or the feast, but it's their righteousness and their legalistic approach to works. The good news of Jesus is that salvation is not found in religion, nor is it found in irreligion. Salvation is not found in morality or immorality. It's found in Christ. It's found in the Father. It's found in relationship. And this was completely astonishing and confusing to Jesus' audience at the time. And it might be just as astonishing and confusing to some of us. Why is the younger son lost? Well, he wanted his father's wealth, but not the father. He did. Uh, how did the younger son get what he wanted? Well, he broke the moral rules. He left home and he left his father. But the oldest brother also wanted selfish control over the father's wealth. He was unhappy with the father's use of the possessions, the robe that he gave the son, the ring, the calf. But while the younger brother got control by taking his stuff and running away, we see that the elder brother got control or wanted to have control by staying home and being very, very good. He felt that he had the right to tell the father what to do with his possessions because he was good and he obeyed him. And Jesus is telling the audience, no, he's lost too. In reality, both the, both the sons wanted to be their own saviors. One way to be your own savior is simply by breaking God's law, his commands, or by simply put, sinning. The other way to be your own savior is becoming legalistic towards the law and placing it above a relationship. The person following the second way thinks, if I can be so good that God has to answer my prayer, give me a good life, and take me to heaven, then I've made it. That's how I'm going to do it. The second person may be looking to Jesus to be their helper or their rewarder, but not their savior. 
they are their own savior. They want to be in control. The difference between a Christian and a religious person to me is that the religious person obeys God to get control over him, to get God to give him what he's looking for to obtain salvation. A Christian is someone who obeys God in order to have a relationship where those things will then occur naturally as a result of the fruit that is evident in our lives. If we were to stop, take a second, and truly evaluate ourselves, how would we be identified by Christ? How would we be identified by the Father? Are we struggling in sin and rebellion like the youngest son? Or are we struggling with the Father's actions like the eldest? Do we claim to be religious or Christian while making ourselves our own savior and relegating the father to a mere servant in his own house? Do we do what is right in order to get what we want? Or do we do what we want and tell ourselves that it's okay? As I said from the outset, it's much easier to identify with the younger son. And it's also much more apparent when we are the prodigal son returning. How do we know if we're the eldest brother? How do we know if we're struggling as that eldest brother type? What are the signs of lost sheep? Well, if we look at the elder brother in this parable, I think there's five characteristics that we can take from this story. The first is a sign of deep anger. Deep anger. Look at verse 28. He became angry. Elderly brothers believe God owes them a comfortable and good life if they try hard and live up to his standards. And they have lived up to those standards. Some of us have lived up to those standards for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And so they say, my life ought to be going really well. And when it doesn't, they get angry. But they're forgetting Jesus. He lived a life better than any of us. Yet he suffered terribly. Apostles lived some pretty interesting lives. They suffered terribly. And who did, who did Christ suffer for? Well, he suffered for sinners, lost sons, younger brother, eldest brother, middle child, all of us. The second sign of an elder brother type is loss. Of, uh, elder brother type is a joyless and mechanical obedience. Look at verse 29. The elder brother says, I've been slaving for you. Elder brothers obey God as a means to an end, as a way to get what they want. They're trying to control God and their actions begin to lose that joy that exudes, I think, when we are in a real relationship with our creator. Have you ever heard of anyone say they go to church so they can make it through the week? Are they saying they go to church so God will give them a good week? A week where they don't feel pain or hurt because God never promises those things. Right? Obedience is a good thing. It's hard. But older brother types obey to get what they want. They don't do it because they love God and so their obedience is characterized by a joyless mechanical response. They become slaves to themselves to obtain what they cannot Often these eldest brother types force this mentality on others, especially younger brother types that have returned to the father and now know the joy of a relationship with him. They force their rules on the younger brothers, rules about how to dress, how many times to be at church, how to conduct yourself in the sanctuary, how high we can raise our hands, who to vote for, 
and on and on and on it goes. They do this because they think rules please God or earn his blessing. And so they're acting out of that. This leads me to the third characteristic of an elder type. A coldness to younger brothers. Look at verse 30. What does the older brother say? This son of yours. The older brother will not even acknowledge that it's his younger brother. He's saying it's the father's son, not his brother. He could have used different language. Jesus could have intentionally used different language, but he doesn't. It says, this son of yours. Elder brothers don't do evangelism well. They don't share Jesus They're too disdainful of younger brother types or of sinners. The same sinners that Jesus ate with and hung out with. The same sinners that Jesus is sharing this parable with. Additionally, lost older brothers treat younger brothers who have returned to God with disdain as well. They don't like the fact that younger brothers receive attention from the father or from the church or from the pastor or have experienced the blessings they have. They want the attention for themselves. And there's some churches where older brother types complain that those younger brothers are stealing attention, time, resources, money away from them. This was exactly what the elder brother in the story was mad about. He thinks that his dad threw a party for his brother and was wasting the father's resources. Why was he mad about that? Because it was eventually going to be his. Fourth, Elder brother types lack assurance of the father's love. If we go back to verse 29, the elder brother says, you never threw me a party. Are we to believe that the father never threw a party? Not once in all the years that he had his sons? He probably did, but it wasn't for him. He didn't get called out as special. And as long as we're trying to earn our salvation or even God's blessing, God's love, or God's acceptance through our actions, through our our goodness, you will never be sure that you've been good enough. What are the signs of this? Well, every time something goes wrong in your life, you wonder if it's a punishment from God. Another sign is irresolvable guilt. You can't be sure you've repented deeply enough or done enough to make restitution So we constantly beat ourselves up over what we've done. If we want assurance of the Father's love, it is throughout Scripture. But we find it in relationship, not in obedience. Obedience will come from that relationship. Fifth and finally, older brother types have an unforgiving and judgmental spirit. The elder brother doesn't want the father to forgive and accept the younger brother back into the fold. He is upset because the father had already forgiven and reconciled himself with his younger brother. The elder son was angry that this happened before he was even consulted on the matter. I imagine in this story the elder brother is waiting for the youngest son to return so that he can be the first one out and smash a a pottery at his, his brother's feet. He's taking the approach of, oh, pride. I can't wait till I prove my older or my younger brother wrong. Not that an older child would ever do that, right? He's waiting for his opportunity. And he's found out that not only did he lose his opportunity, but father's already forgiven him and brought him back into the fold. There's no repercussions The elder son was pretty angry that this had happened. 
And it becomes quite difficult to forgive someone if you cannot empathize with them. If you look at them with the attitude that I would never do anything bad or I wouldn't have done that, it's a difficult position to be in to welcome younger brothers back into the fold. Jesus ends the parable with the lostness of the older brother in order to get across the point that there's a more dangerous spiritual condition. The younger brother knew he was alienated from the father, but the older son had no clue. So what can be done about this? Well, if we go back to the parable, the younger son accepts the father's actly cost, or the, the act of costly grace. He accepts being found by the father instead of finding a plan to work his way back. The son had to accept that response from the father, right? The father ran to him, making a fool out of himself to the entire village. He bared the scorn of the village and the family so that the young son need not to be cut off from his relationship any longer. The younger son accepted his father's grace shown to him in this act of love. He takes the fine robe. He accepts the sandals being placed on his feet. He accepts a place of honor at the feast, at the celebration. He accepts being a son again. The father did the same thing with his older son. He embarrasses himself. Instead of locking his his older son up and beating him, he gives his son what he doesn't deserve. It's a costly demonstration of forgiveness, love, and grace. The, The father, again, went and met the older son where he was and tried to repair the relationship. Now, I want you to notice something. And maybe you've seen this before in the reading of the parable, but it ends abruptly. We don't know if the older son goes into the banquet or not. Well, why not? Why wouldn't Jesus have finished the story? Did the scribe run out of pencil or ink or? Well, in my reading of this and from all the different theologians that I've mentioned today, like Henry Nowen and Kenneth Bailey, their consensus is that Jesus wants the religious people, those for whom these parables are aimed at, to finish the ending themselves. He is asking the audience to come to the feast and eat with him. Younger son, older son, middle son, doesn't matter. Remember, Jesus has shared three parables in this chapter, all communicating very similar points. He's creating an invitation for his audience of sinners, tax collectors, and Pharisees. He's left it unfinished so that they have an opportunity to respond. And so this morning, that's my question to you. Are you going to finish the story? Are you going to respond and accept the invitation to attend to the Father's feast? But what prevents us from willingly approaching the Father or welcoming the Son back home? I have a couple apps for you today, a couple things that I want you to think through as you take them hopefully with you this week and allow them to work in your heart. The first is this. You're either moving towards or apart from the father. The youngest son, he went off to a far off country. He moved away from the father and then he recognized what he did and he began moving his way back. The oldest son did the same thing. He just didn't travel nearly as far but he was allowing his anger and his frustration with his sibling 
to determine the type of relationship that he had with the Father. We were not created to exist apart from our relationship with the Father, and so we need to accept the invitation of attending the banquet hall. This means we need to constantly be asking ourselves, are we initiating relationship with the Father? Because if, he is, if we are, he is there waiting. Now, he will run to us. He will find us. He will rescue us. But it doesn't mean we can't initiate that process. Second thing is this. God is not concerned about your image or his Jesus said that the father ran to his son. Remember, every detail in the story is important. The Jews listening to this would have found this funny or touching or embarrassing. In fact, they would have felt nothing but shame for this father. Why? Because in that society, dignified men didn't run. It was a way of lowering yourself in stature. You see, in Jewish culture, a man of his estate would never run. It was beneath him. That's what servants were for. He could have sent his servant out to run after the son and provide him a robe and sandals and everything he needed. The father didn't need to be the one to to do that. But it says the father ran. He lowered himself in stature. And just like the father did not care what the members of the community thought, God does not care what others think about you or him. When he sees you, When he sees you making the right decisions to give yourself back to him, he is so happy that he will throw caution to the wind and receive you to himself. Think of what Jesus did, giving up heaven to live on earth among us. I cannot think of another way to lower yourself in stature. Would you give up your humanity to live at that level? Third thing is this, forgiveness is a requirement to attend the banquet. No matter if you're the youngest son who is seeking forgiveness from those you've wronged or the eldest son who is harboring anger to those who wronged you, if the father has granted forgiveness, then we need to as well. L. Gregory Jones, a wonderful author, he notes that the therapeutic language has increasingly distorted the grammar of Christian forgiveness. And this is something I've found fascinating as I went through my seminary studies and my master studies. Despite the fact that elements of therapeutic forgiveness can be incorporated into a Christian account, there are crucial differences between them. And unfortunately, we Christians have failed to diagnose these differences adequately because psychological language and practices have become more powerful than the language and practices of the gospel, not only in the whole culture, but even in the church. In Bonhoeffer's terms, we've substituted cheap grace for the costly grace of discipleship. Forgiveness is required, and we need to be practicing it. Not cheap forgiveness, but real forgiveness that requires hard conversations. And finally, we need to wait for his inheritance. In the story, Jesus said the son squandered his wealth in wild living. He was not ready for all the blessing that he was asking for. One of the more powerful lessons of faith from the prodigal son is this. God will sometimes give us what we ask for, even if, we're, even if we do not have the tools to handle it. Similarly, the eldest son wanted his blessings, right, to enjoy with his friends while faithfully attending to the father. He too was not ready for what he asked. The vast majority of religious people don't go into the banquet hall. 
the vast majority of the world has, has walked right past the feast and the celebration that God has put on. They don't come in. They refuse to go because Jesus goes, or they refuse to, they refuse to because Jesus goes after, welcomes, and eats with sinners that don't play by the rules. The, religion, uh, the religious people that put Jesus on trial for disrespecting him, right, disrespecting their religion, the rules, the Pharisees, the Jews of the time, they found him guilty. Of what? They put him on a cross. For what? Well, Jesus died to welcome younger brother type sinners to his banquet in eternity. Jesus died to bring the prodigal son home. But he still invites the older brother to his banquet, to his feast. Not all of us require the amazing testimony of suffering to attend the banquet. We can all attend the feast. Jesus died to pay the price both for the elder brother and the younger brother, regardless of what they have done. Each of them in their own unique way refuse the father, but have an opportunity to receive him, just as we do today. So my encouragement for you is receive the Father, attend the feast, be in relationship with him, and allow that to transform the way you live your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, God, I just pray that you continue to work in our midst. Work in this church, work in our communities, our homes, our relationships. God, allow us, regardless of what son we identify with, to respond to your invitation and participate in the kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.